Well, you know. and you look at the shepherd, right? You know, Jesus is the picture of the good shepherd. But a lot of times people just think of the shepherd as just like calm, soft-spoken, gentle human being. Well, shepherds were not that. I mean, like in Jesus' day, shepherds were rough rednecks is what yeah. they were. I mean, they were they were the nomads. They They knew how to live off the land. They would kill bears and lions that were protecting, that were coming after their sheep. They would kill thieves that were coming after their sheep. And David writes about uh, about it in Psalm 23. He says, um, you know, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Don't think I will even ask you to make Jesus Lord of your life. That's the most preposterous thing I could ever tell you to do. Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. Whether you serve him or not, whether you bless him, curse him, hate him or love him, he is the Lord of your life because God has given him a name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus Christ every knee shall bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. Some of you will bow out of the grace that has been given to you and others will bow because your kneecaps will be broken by the one who rules the nations with a rod of iron. And I'll not apologize for this God of the Bible. This is the For the King podcast. I'm your host, Rocky Ramsey. On this podcast, we proclaim the edicts of the king, namely that Yahweh reigns. I'm joined today with Micah Beckwith, who is a pastor at Life Church in Noblesville, Indiana, a small business owner, a school teacher, one of the co-hosts of a podcast titled Jesus, Sex, and Politics, and he ran for Indiana's 5th Congressional District in 2020 for the U.S. House. Micah, thanks so much, brother, for spending some time with me. I'm really looking forward to it. It's good. Yeah. Rocky, thanks for having me. Thanks. Uh, thanks for what you're doing. Yeah. hundred um, percent. So the, the, I, I put the last thing of what, what you've recently done uh, running for U S house. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to pick your brain about that. Just a lot of Christians aren't as involved in politics as Christians used to be um, uh, during the reformation, pure, especially in the Puritan times um, you're um, sermons would kind of be like daily news briefs in a way. Um, Christians were really involved with politics. And I just love that that's what you're doing with your podcast, Jesus, Sex and Politics. Um, so I'd love to pick your brain more about that too. But let's start with with Congress and running your run for Congress and what that was like. So can you kind of describe that for me and um, and kind of how Christian, your Christian faith and believing in Christ um, kind of factors into that? Yeah, well, it was, it was a really wild experience. Um, I had never run for political office before I ran for Congress. I uh, ran in the fifth district. Um, the, it was May of 2019. Uh, I remember my congresswoman at the time, her name was Susan Brooks. She, um, she just wasn't uh, standing for, I would say, conservative values, Christian values, the way that she should be doing. She voted for a bill in May of 2019, that was called the House Equality Act. And it's just it's just a a, it was a really bad bill. To this day, Democrats are still trying to push that type of nonsense through the House. But that bill would um, one it had it had a piece of pro uh, abortion funding had a pro abortion funding mechanism in there. So she she voted for for that. And she even said in her when she came out, said why she voted for it. She said, I understand that there was you know, abortion funding and everything in this bill, but the bill was too good to pass up. And I'm like, first of all, if there's ever anything, uh, abortion funding, like anywhere, like we need to stop that in its tracks. And, and so I was really disappointed that she did that. And then the other, what the Equality Act though would do, it would, uh, it would force, it basically would make sexual uh, identity, sexual orientation, like uh, it would make it a protected class. So like, you know, anyone who claims to be anything sexual, you would never be able to refute that. It would be the same thing, kind of like skin color or race, right? Like yeah. we, as Christians, we recognize that God gives you your race. God gives you your skin color. That's a, that's a God given attribute. We should protect that. that. That's a good thing to protect that. But sexuality is not a, uh, it's not, it, it's not a choice. Like you don't get to choose to be you know, a different gender than you are biologically. God gives you that. But the Equality Act would force people to say, hey, if some dude wants to be a chick and start like saying he's a chick and win all these gold medals and swimming, yeah. like we have to just go along with that because we're not allowed to say that that's stupid. And 
as someone who thinks that's really stupid, uh, I was like, I'm not going to be told by the government. I have to go along with something as like as asinine as this transgender movement. And it is it's it's absolute lunacy. Yeah, if you were to go if you could go back 20 years and say, hey, in 20 years from now, um, we're going to have the liberals and the Democrats telling us that biological men can be women and play in biological women's sports. Even the Democrat Party back 20 years ago would have said, you're nuts. I mean, uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama both would have said that's crazy 20 years ago. But here we are and we're being told by something like the House Equality Act, we just have to go along with that. So if you were a church, if you were a business, if you were I mean, just anyone, you would have to begin to uh, say that, no, any type of sexuality is is protected. And we know it's like, listen. Like we're not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go along with like, what, what are you going to do with pedophilia? Is that going to be a protected class too? Like this is where I was, this is where my mind was going. I'm like, I'm not going to sit idly by as someone who identifies as a pedophile just says, well, that's just the way I was made. And now you have to, you have to affirm that in me. It's like, no, I'm not going to affirm that in anyone. And so, so when that happened, when she voted for the equality act in 2019, I heard the Lord just say, get in this race and get in the race now and, and primary Susan Brooks. And now again, I was politically savvy, but I had, had not run for anything ever before. And so I was like, God, that's crazy. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not running for Congress. I'll maybe, maybe I'll be a, you know, maybe I'll run for dog catcher first and like, <laughs> let's work my way up. Right. And the Lord said, no, run for, run for Congress. And, and, and it was, the only way I can describe it is it was in about a four week period from, from May to mid June, I was like, the God just brought the people around me to build this congressional race. I mean, we had our political director, campaign manager, our social media director. I mean, just people were like, Hey, you know, God led me to you, or I I heard what you were doing and I want to be a part of it. And, and it was, it was crazy. And we were getting ready to primary Susan Brooks and, and in the meantime, I was going around to these different conservative groups saying, hey, I'm going to primary Susan Brooks, uh, you know, come May of 2020. Like, I'm not going to sit idly by. And they were like, OK, well, we'll support you, but you're going to you're going to get killed. But, you know, we'll support you anyway, because we think she's not doing a very good job either. And so these these conservative groups just came came around me. Yeah. And and then something crazy happened mid-June towards the that's probably towards the middle part of June, 2019. She, Susan Brooks comes out on a Friday and she says she's retiring from Congress. And it was like, what the heck's going on here? Well, then it, it like the, this race, like got crazy. We weren't going to announce that we were running for Congress until September of 2019 publicly. We weren't going to do that publicly. But then when she did that in June, we came out the next Monday. So like two days later and we said, Hey, by the way, I'm running for Congress. And everyone's like, who is this Micah guy? And we had our website already up. We had like our team in place. Everyone's like, what the heck? This was too, we, we're just now trying to get our head around Susan Brooks retiring. And there's this Micah guy who's yeah. in the race. Well, what they didn't know is we'd been planning this for the last you know month. And, and so it was God's timing because what happened was then all these other conservatives that were kind of in the, in Indiana, the way we were looking at, they were like, Oh, they started going around to these conservative groups that already publicly or privately gave me their support. And they started saying, Hey, I'm going to run for this congressional seat. And they're like, Hey, we're sorry. We already given our support to this Micah guy. Like where were you a month ago when, you know, it wasn't cool to run for office because, you know, they were, they didn't want to primary the incumbent, but I said, Hey, I'm principal alone. I don't care if you're the incumbent or not. If you're, if you're not upholding life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I'm going to, I'm, you're going to have an issue with me. I'm going to have an issue with you. And, uh, and so, so all that to say, that's kind of how the whole thing started. And, and in two weeks, pub, after we announced publicly, we said, well, we probably have to, we probably should like march in a 4th of July parade because that's what politicians do. Right. And we had about, we had about a week and a half to get people to march with us in the 4th of July, the Noblesville 4th of July parade. And we had, we had 130 people show up to march with us in the, in the Noblesville 4th of July parade in about a week's notice, just over a week's notice. Wow. And it was the sea of light blue shirts just walking down the street. And everyone's like, what is going on? This, who is this Micah guy? And, and again, all, I tell you the story only to say it was it was just God's hand like behind all of this. Right. So 
So, you know, when, when God builds the house, there ain't nothing anyone's going to do to stop it. And, uh, you know, scripture says if the laborers who build the house labor, uh, if they, if, if the Lord's not in the building of the house, the laborers labor in vain. And, um, and in this case, God was in the building of the house. And so it wasn't like we were laboring in vain. And honestly, it wasn't even like we were laboring. It was just like, hold on and try to keep up, you know? So that was, that was kind of the cool, the cool part of the story. But then the, the race opened up to a 15-way primary, huge primary. I mean, if you know, if you know uh, political primaries, 15 candidates is like, it's insane. Now, I'm a, I'm a capitalist. I'm a competition guy. Hey, may the best. I, I think competition in political races is a really good thing because it's like let the best, give the, give the people as many options as possible, let them vote for the best possible candidate. So I was good with it. I didn't, I didn't care. I was like, the more the merrier. I, I even encouraged some people to get in the race, like if they want to. So I never saw it as a threat. I was like, Hey, I've got a good message. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to outrun all of you and, and, you know, let the best man win. And so, um, and, and so we, we ended up in that race, uh, we didn't win, but we took third out of 15 candidates and it was a year and a half of campaigning, knocking on doors. COVID happened. I knew when COVID shut down all of our in-person debates, I knew that was going to hurt me because I was really good on the debate stage. Like I was like, that was where my sweet spot was when people saw me like defending, uh, constitutional values and biblical truth. Like it was hard. It was hard to deny that I knew what I was talking about. And and that's just, you know, God working through me. It's not me. It's it's the Holy Spirit, you know, speaking through me. But um, so so when all of those debates started shutting down, then it really just kind of was like, OK, it's going to be a tough race to win because now it turns to who can raise the most money and who can buy the most TV ads and the mo- most mailers and stuff like that. And and that's where we didn't we raised about one hundred forty thousand dollars. But, you know, for me, that, that's a lot of money. And I was like, that's pretty good. Um, but we got outspent, um, you know, the Victoria Sparks who ended up winning, she spent about a million dollars in the primary and, oh, and so no. just peppered the TV, uh, uh, ads and, and mailboxes with her, her stuff. And it's hard, it's hard to beat that, but I will say this, I, out of all the candidates, I thought Victoria and I were the two most conservative. And I do think God's hand was in that. And I'm glad the Lord raised her up because she's Ukrainian right now. She's exactly, I feel like the voice that needs to be speaking out with what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Um, and, and in the same way, God has really catapulted me to great influence uh, around the state. So I think it was a win the way it turned out. I honestly, I couldn't be happier. And, and I think the Lord will lead me down uh, another into, you know, other offices down the road or, or who knows, like, you know, Victoria, you know, moves on at some point, maybe I'll be led into running for the fifth district again. But it's just, you know, it's kind of in God's hands. So that's kind of how I was sort of the overarching view of my congressional race. And, and it was, it was a lot of fun. I, I thought I, I would, I would do it again in a heartbeat. I never thought I would be doing something like that, but boy, it was, it was cool getting, and what I loved about it is I, I gained so many new friends, um, got to talk to so many amazing people in the fifth district. I, I never had a conversation with anyone that I didn't like, even those who'd like, adamantly disagreed with me. I love talking to them too. It was really, really exciting time. So, uh, so yeah, that was kind of my, that's the background of my congressional race in, uh, in 2020. No, I, yeah, I really appreciate you walking through that. Um, so I guess maybe something I kind of want to extract from the story, would you encourage Christians that want to be involved in politics that it's doable after your, like, I know, I know you said how hard it was, how difficult it was at times and you were going to, you had to work hard in the midst of it. But, uh, you know, are there any words of wisdom you would give um, to actually going about running that you would you would encourage Christians that, hey, you can get involved in this? Right. Oh, absolutely. I don't think it's a question of if you're going to get involved in politics. It's where is God calling you to be involved in politics? So um, there are three institutions that God set up in the Old Testament. Uh, He set up the family first, the government second and the church third. Every Christian has a duty to be in all three of those institutions. We're all in the family. We're all supposed to be in the church and we're all supposed to be involved in government or if what we would call politics. Yeah. I know some Christians don't like to hear that. Like, oh my gosh, politics is a dirty word. I'm not, God doesn't want us in politics. Yes, he does. He, he gives you these governments to steward. And in the United States, we, the people, are the stewards of our government. God has placed you, if you're a Christian, he's placed you in the United States. Guess what? 
You're supposed to be in your family. You're supposed to steward your family well. You're supposed to be in a church and you're supposed to steward your church well. And you're supposed to be in the government and you're supposed to steward that well. Now, what, where you go, like how you're, you're influential in those institutions is very different. Like I'm a pastor, but not God doesn't call everybody to be a pastor, but he does call everyone to be in the church. I'm a father. God doesn't call everyone to be a father, but he does call everyone to be in a family and to honor honor the authority and the structure of the family, right? So at one point I was a son. I was to honor my mother and father. I was supposed to be a good part of the family. At one point I wasn't a pastor, but I was to be in the church. Yeah. At one point I wasn't a politician, right? Uh, I'm still technically not. I hope I'm never a politician, just FYI. I, I would like to refer to myself as a statesman, right? <laughs> but but at one point I wasn't as like politically outspoken as I am now, but God is calling me to be politically outspoken. So you have to ask yourself as a Christian, Lord, where is my lane of influence in all three of those institutions? So again, if a Christian ever tells you I'm not supposed to be in politics, they don't know what the heck they're talking about yep. because God does not give any Christian the right to step away from governance. It would be the same way. It would be the same thing if uh, you know someone came up to a pastor and said, well, pastor, you know, I love God. I'm, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm not going to be in the church. You know, the church, that church thing's not for me. Uh-huh. I mean, any pastor in the right mind would be like, that's a really foolish thing to say, yeah. right? Like God is calling you to be in the church. But when someone walks up to a pastor and says, well, pastor, I'm not going to be in politics and this guy, yeah, I'm just going to let, you know, the government thing take care of itself. Most pastors say, well, that's probably a good idea because politics is really like that. God's not concerned with politics. No, he is concerned with politics. And the other thing I would say, especially the pastors who say that God doesn't want us to be in politics. Well, isn't the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel? I mean, does politics include all the world? Yes, it does. And if the Christians aren't taking the gospel into the world of politics, who do you expect to do that, pastors? You think the devil's going to bring the gospel into the world of politics? Like, are the non-believers going to bring the, the gospel into the world of politics? It's it's such a bad argument when any Christian or pastor says, "Well, it's politics, so I don't want to be involved in it." And and the last thing I'll say is when the Lord talks about the ecclesia or the ecclesia, how that uh, how the Lord is going to build His ecclesia on the rock of of Christ. Um, that word ecclesia in the Greek is the city government center. So the Lord, when he said, I'm going to, I'm going to build my ecclesia, I'm going to build the church. Literally, it's going to be in the center of government. Like it's about governance and good governance. Godly governance creates good societies, which then create great platforms for the gospel to spread freely. And that's what Jesus is about. He's about, he doesn't want government to be oppressive. He doesn't want government to be tyrannical. That's not God's heart. But if Christians don't engage in it, then how do we expect that governance will be good? So it would be the same thing saying like, well, I'm not going to engage in family issues because I'm just going to let God take care of that. Like, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the family of God. So I'm not going to concern myself with my earthly family. I'm just going to let God take care of that. The Lord would look at me and say, Micah, you're dropping your duty as a father to steward the family that I gave you. And, and so I think there are some, there are some Christians that, especially pastors say, well, if I get involved in American politics, somehow I'm showing less love to the other nations of the world. Well, that's stupid because do you, do you have that same mindset when it comes to your own family? Do you think about my family when you're picking a job for your family, like for you yeah. and like what you're, no, you think about your family first. Like, is this going to be good for my family? And then guess what? When you put your family first, your family is stewarded well, it's healthy. You're free now and, 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 and capable of helping other families around you. Yep. If your family isn't healthy, there ain't nothing you're going to be able to do to bless the world with the gospel because you're going to have an unhealthy family. The same is true with government. If America isn't healthy because we don't put it first as Christians because that's where God has placed us, then there is nothing we're going to be able to do to bless the world as well. So I would say the same thing to Christians living in Iran. You have a duty to make sure Iran is doing the best it can to honor God. Now, Iran is not a nation honoring God. It's a tyrannical dictatorship. It's it's authoritarian. There is it. Christians have a very different battle they're fighting in Iran than we do in America. But God placed them in Iran. They need to figure out how it is to best steward that nation and get that nation to turn towards the gospel. 
It might be a really hard task to do, and, and I believe it is. Praise God that we live in the United States. We have a lot easier job than the Christians in Iran, but Christians, the church in America is just saying, oh, we don't want to offend anyone, so we're just going to we're just going to stay out of politics altogether. Well, yeah. you do that, you're going to be like the you're going to be like the man in the parable of the talents that buries his talent in the sand, and the Lord's going to you're going to stand before the Lord someday, and He's going to say, "I gave you this gem of a nation, and you buried it in the sand because you were afraid of offending your neighbor." Yeah, like how foolish can 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 you be, church? So that's kind of my that's my response to uh, Christians who say they yeah. don't. They, you know, should they get in politics? Yes. The answer is yes, you should. No. <laughs> Amen, brother. I mean, yeah, every, you're getting into sphere of sovereignty. You're getting into clear commands in scripture, a place I like to go. Um, Cause you, you were quoting things of the separation between church and state and like the state really is like, they're connected. Like people think separation of church and state is that, that you never, ever uh, let your Christianity influence your politics. That's not at all what church and state separation of church and state ever historically meant ever. Right. Because laws are built on morals. Where do morals come from? Not from atheism. Right. They're, they're, that's subjectivism. Everybody's will goes. So you're not going to get a law, a binding law from, you know, atheism. You're going to get it from some religion. You're going to get it from, you know, uh, obviously Christianity, because <laughs> Jesus is the truth, uh, the way, the truth and the life. And um, I, I guess another thing to add um, or did you have something to interact with that? Because I'd want to. Well, I was just going to say that the lie of separation of church and state that somehow they're completely separate was taken out of context. That was 1942. There was a, a justice who was a, a, a Supreme Court justice. His name was Hugo Black. Really bad guy. The guy was a KKK like uh, sympathizer. Helped uh, get some KKK members um, off the hook for killing black people and and like just a completely like wicked dude. Well he didn't want the church and the values of Christianity anywhere in the government because he understood like if Christian values, the Judeo Christian ethic were infused in the government, then he wouldn't be able to do all the wicked things that he was getting away with. So he, he, there was a, there was a case that came before him as a Supreme court justice and, and the Supreme court ruled and he, he was, you know, obviously he was an advocate in this. They ruled that, Thomas Jefferson was yeah. saying in his 1802 uh, letter to the Danbury, Connecticut Baptist Association, when he wrote, there's a wall of separation of church and state. <laughs> he was, Thomas Jefferson really meant that the church has no business being in the state. Well, that letter was a three paragraph letter. It's not an, it's, it's not an official government document. It's not nowhere. Can you find within the, um, the constitution, anything that says separation of church and state, you find the establishment clause where it says that Congress shall make no law restricting the, the, the practice of, of religion. Yep. Like you can't, Congress is not allowed to go into the church, right? That's a one way street. But what Hugo Black did, what the Supreme court did was they said, Oh no, no, no. This is really a two week, two way street. And really, even more so today, it's becoming a one-way street the other way where it's like, hey, the state can come into the church now, but the church can't come into the state. Our founders never in a million years intended that to be the case. Even Thomas Jefferson started a church in Capitol Hill, on Capitol Hill, that became the largest church in Virginia. Like there wasn't a bigger church. And he, if he was the guy who really believed in separation of church and state, yeah. In America, in American context, why would he have ever started a church that met on Capitol Hill in Virginia that became one of the largest churches? We had a congressional Bible. Uh, our founding fathers said the one thing that should be taught in public schools was the word of God. Yeah. Like you can go all the way back through like our history and see our founders said, if we're going to remain a Christian, uh, a free nation, we have to be a Christian nation. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that Muslims and Jews and atheists have to practice Christianity. That means that because of the Christian ethic, they will be free to to practice whatever faith you want to practice. Because guess what? Out of all the faiths and religions in the world, the one faith that says we're going to give you freedom to do what you want to do is the Christian faith. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences for your actions, but it does mean God is the God of freedom. And even God himself, the Christian God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, he, that God gives us freedom to worship him or to reject him. He doesn't tell you, you have to do it because why he understands how valuable freedom is. Our founding fathers knew that in order to be remain a free nation, 
we had to adhere to those morals. Like you said earlier, Rocky, the morals of that faith will protect freedom and liberty for everyone. So, so again, it's not to say everyone has to be a Christian. It's to say when we root ourselves in the Judeo-Christian ethic, freedom and, and blessings prosper for everyone. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. But what you're seeing now is you're seeing people say, oh, my gosh, this God thing, this Christian thing, we got to get it out of our we got to get it out of our schools. Well, why? I always ask people why. What's what's so like wrong about the Christian faith? Like, what don't you like about the Ten Commandments? Like, don't kill. Like, don't steal. Don't lie. Don't, you know, covet your neighbor's stuff. You know, like what what like what about those do you not like? Like what like do you want your students to be killing people? Do you want your students to be lying? Do you want your students to be coveting? Uh, like, it, it, again, it's they're, they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater is what essentially they're doing. They're they're thinking they're just throwing the bathwater out, but they're really throwing the baby out with it. And so that's that's kind of the uh, the point of, you know, what's going on in our nation. When you say separation of church and state, you're you're you can't do that because if you separate the church out of the republic that we've been given here in the United States, who gets to set the morals and what's right and wrong? Because like, again, where are we going to go back and find the, the moral principles? Is it a politician that's going to be able to set what's right and wrong? I mean, gosh, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want our politicians telling me what's right and wrong. Uh, even if you paid me a million dollars to let them do it, you know what I mean? Like, you know, so it's so all that to say, like, just, I just want to expand on the, that concept of the separation of church and state because so many people have gotten that uh, out of context and they, and they don't even, they just buy into this idea that, oh yeah, the church needs to stay out of government. No, government needs to stay out of the church. The church has always been called to be close to government so that we can be the moral beacon of right and wrong. And the government doesn't do yeah. stupid stuff like we've seen in the last two years yeah. with this COVID nonsense. So exactly. Yeah. For, first Timothy talks about the church being the pillar and buttress of truth. The, the state isn't the pillar and buttress of truth. The state in Romans 13 just bears the sword. That's all it does. It just bears right. the sword. And it says that it's supposed to, the, the state's supposed to be a terror on those who do evil yep. and a blessing to those who do good. Well, how do you know what evil is and what good is? Well, if you're, you know, if you're instituting Sharia law, evil and good is going to look a lot different. And Sharia law, you're allowed to beat your wife and do things like that, right? Evil and good is going to look totally different under, and same thing with atheism, eugenics, abortion is going to be legal. If you're in an atheistic secular society, you're going to have laws that allow for all sorts of things that we would call wicked. So it's really the myth of neutrality. There's no worldview, worldview that's neutral. You're going to have law that's implemented that corresponds to the worldview that's dominating the culture. Mm-hmm. And you just, well, that's, and that's why the Lord hates it. He literally hates it when people make turn right to wrong and wrong to right. I mean, that's why Isaiah says, woe to those who call good evil and, and yeah. evil good, you know, like it, because when you begin to warp what's right and what's wrong, then the government will start persecuting those who are doing good yeah. and blessing and rewarding those who are doing evil. And so to your point, if there isn't a standard, if there isn't a true standard of right and wrong, yeah. how does the government bear the sword on the right evil? It's going to go after, it's actually going to start going after things that are good, which yeah. is going to totally wreck the society and the culture and there will be a complete societal breakdown yep. and it will lead to chaos and torment for, for everyone. Not even, I mean, literally everyone will suffer under that. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. I, th- those are really good. I think, fa- I think those are really biblical foundational things that Christians need to think about when they're developing their politic, you know? So yeah. obviously you've thought it through and you, you've seen how that plays out in your life. And every Christian needs to go through this exercise. So I guess um, on, on the same kind of topic, the thread that we're already on, um, on, on, in your podcast, Jesus, Sex, and Politics, I was listening to one of them that you guys had put on. I forget your co-host name, but you and That's this Nathan. other guy. Yes, Nathan. Yeah. And uh, you guys were talking about, you know, the, the insanity of the culture at one point. And you brought, you brought up Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time for war and then there's a time for peace. And then you were saying, okay, well, you know, let's look around. Is this a time of peace right now? In terms of like, is Christianity, like is, is America the beacon of hope of Christianity when, you know, we're slaughtering millions and millions of unborn babies, right? Is that, is this a, a good place for people to live, right? 
when there's people being murdered. So you, you were, you were trying to make the case that it's a, it's a time of war. So how would you describe that to somebody that we're in a time of war? Why is it important to fight as a Christian rather than rolling over and letting, you know, secular atheists uh, take over government and then decide what right and wrong is when actually that's going to really harm society big time. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a battle going on for heart, for mind and for body. I mean, so, you know, sometimes we look at war in the context of just, uh, just physical, like war is all, like what we see in Russia and Ukraine right now when bombs are flying and bullets are flying. Yeah, that's, that is war. And, and that's, that's the physical aspect of war. But before the physical ever gets there, there has to be, there's a mental battle that goes on. There's a, there's a heart battle that goes on. So Russia wouldn't be doing what Russia is doing right now unless there had been some uh, battle for the mind. Somehow somebody in Russia or some people in Russia fought for this idea that there is a time and a place to invade a sovereign country before, uh, un- totally unprovoked, right? Um, and, and so, again, there was a lack of truth that, that people stood up for in Russia. So the, the truth lost the day in Russia first before the bullets and bombs started flying. The same is true in America. Right now, we see this battle going on in our public schools. Uh, America is being is being uh, is being taught as a nation that is a racist, evil nation. The founding fathers were racist, right? The Constitution obviously must be voided and nullified because the those the men who wrote it were were evil, wicked men. Uh, critical race theory is being taught in, in schools right now. That's all. That's that's a it's divisive. It's literally separating people into classes. You have socioeconomic classes. You have race classes. Everything is class war, warfare. Class warfare, right? That is the that is class warfare is the pinnacle uh, weapon of Marxism. Yeah. Marxism has to first separate people in the, into classes before there can be a war. But that war starts takes place mentally. So to those who would say we're not in a war, I would say you're you're asleep. There is a there is certainly a war going on for the heart and the mind of our of our nation. Now, the bullets and bombs haven't been flying here yet but that's all that's that will come if we lose the heart and the mind mm-hmm. then it's only a matter of time before bullets and bombs start flying yeah so so we better get in the game church if you if you want to see peace you must go to war there's a there's a famous um there's a famous uh latin phrase that says see wis pacum parabellum and what that means is it means if you wish for peace, prepare for war. And, you know, when Jesus talks about uh, when he's given um, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Right. They will be called children of God. Um, what he's saying is those who go to war and make peace will be like God. OK, so they they are the ones that are going to. They're they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna act like God. Well, the Bible says about God in Exodus fifteen three it says the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. God is a God of war. Now He goes to war so that He can root out evil, so that people can live in peace. I think what we think a lot of times is like, well, blessed are the peacemakers. So I just always have to be peaceful. No, no, no. Peacemaking is different from peacekeeping. You know, if you look at the UN, the UN has these soldiers for lack of a better term, we'll call them soldiers because they're pushovers as much as maybe a, you know, a dandelion is. Uh, but they, they go, they, they've got their guns, probably not loaded, and they walk into these war zones and they're trying to keep the peace. They do a terrible job of keeping peace. Why? Because they don't go in saying, we're going to wage war with the evil people in this city or in this battle zone, and we're going to kill them. So that they don't they can't do the evil things that they want to do anymore so that there can be peace. So peacemakers go to war and the evil so that that people can live in peace. Now, some Christians are like, oh, my gosh, God doesn't do that. God absolutely does that. He has fought and killed for his people so that they can live in peace. So when the Bible says blessed are the peacemakers, understand you can't have peace until you go to war with evil. And root out evil, be evil, you, you, you drive evil into the ground, you cut off the head of the snake so that people and your children and children's children can live in peace. Um, uh, Thomas Paine had a, has a famous saying, he says, 
I wish for peace, but if trouble may must come, let it come in my day so my children and their children's children can live in peace. And and he Thomas Paine was thinking he was up, he's thinking from a peacemaking perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the emblem of the United States, the seal of the United States, it's the bald eagle, right? And in its right ta- uh, its right claws, its ta- talons, it has a cluster of olive olive branches, which is a symbol of peace. And in its left talons, it has a cluster of arrows, which is a symbol of war. And the, it's signifying that's very, very intentional, right? Mm-hmm. But if you if you look at the eagle, the bald eagle, which way is its head turned? The bald eagle is looking over towards the olive branches. So basically saying we will be a people of peace. We value peace with all that we are. But when necessary, we will go to war and we will defeat evil and the threats to our to our uh, society so that we can live in peace. So that's that's peacemaking. And and so, again, if you wish, if you wish for peace, prepare for war. And we are in a season of war right now. People need to wake up or else this mental and heart battle that we find ourselves in culturally, it will lead to bullets and bombs. It's just a matter of time. If you go back throughout history, that always happens. Mm-hmm. It's first it's first emotional, then it's mental, and then it's and then it leads to actual physical war. Yeah, the, the only way to stop powerful evil men is for good righteous men to fight them yeah uh, that that's like that's i mean why do we like uh braveheart you know why do men love that movie because you have a good righteous man standing up against a very strong willed evil man yeah. uh if, if you don't have strong men come up and fight evil men then uh the evil men will definitely enslave everybody and uh <laughs> you know like we've seen what happens like yeah. Uh, Adolf Hitler, Stalin, uh, Mao Zedong, like these dudes, like there are there are bloodthirsty men out there and they are wicked. There are wicked men. David writes about them in the Psalms and they mm-hmm. seek blood. They, they, they ready their arrow to shoot the righteous. Um, so we have to obviously we extend the olive branch of the gospel and then we, we do. We defend ourselves if need be. Right. And sometimes we might die a martyr's death. Um, well, and you look at the shepherd, right? You know, Jesus is the picture of the good shepherd. But a lot of times people just think of the shepherd as just like calm, soft-spoken, gentle human being. Well, shepherds were not that. I yeah. mean, like in Jesus's day, shepherds were rough rednecks is what yeah. they were. I mean, they were they were the nomads. They they knew how to live off the land. They would kill bears and lions that were protecting that were coming after their sheep. They would kill thieves that were coming after their sheep. And David writes about uh, about it in Psalm 23. He says, um, you know, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Well, most people know what a shepherd's staff is. It's that long, like hook looking thing. And the shepherd would use that to kind of get the sheep, you know, to get stay in, in, you know, in the pasture. And mm-hmm. it was, it wasn't a tool that, you know, necessarily like was, was, it was not a weapon. It was more of a tool, but the rod, the rod that the shepherd carries when, when David talks about this, of who God is, you know, shepherds carried this weapon and it was called a rod and it, it would literally bludgeon and beat to death the wolf. Yeah, it would it would kill another human being trying to you know steal the sheep. The rod is a symbol. This is where um, you know if you look at kings, kings would carry the scepter. That that was the symbol that they are the shepherd of their flock, which is their nation. If you uh, if you go back to Xerxes, who was uh, the husband of Esther, right? Esther, uh, she her her whole call was she she the Lord raised her up for just a time as this to go into the presence of the king. Mm-hmm. To, to plead on behalf of the Jewish people that he would save her, her people. The, but the thing that she didn't know if it was going to happen or not is if you go into the king un, unannounced and he doesn't extend his rod towards you saying, I'm going to protect you, you would be killed on the spot. Yeah. Well, that rod is a symbol of the shepherd who has the authority to live, to bring death or to bring, or to bring life. And yep. so, so again, like, shepherds and Jesus himself carries the rod for a reason because he'll use it to kill evil, trying to destroy, uh, trying to destroy, to, to destroy good. Um, the other thing about the rod that shepherds do that most people don't realize that a lot of times you, when you see Jesus as a shepherd, he has, he has the sheep over uh-huh. his shoulders, right? You know, that picture of Jesus and he's carrying the sheep back, you know, he'll leave the 99, go searching for the one. Yeah. He'll find the one and he'll throw it, throw them over his shoulders and, and then walk him back to the pasture and all is good, right? Well, why is the shepherd 
throwing the sheep over his shoulders. Like the sheep can walk, can he? Well, in this instance, no, the sheep can't. You know why? Because the shepherd, in those cases, when the sheep wanders off, the shepherd takes the rod and breaks the leg of the sheep so that the sheep can't walk. He picks the sheep up, throws them over his shoulders, takes the sheep back to the pasture, puts the wow. sheep in the pasture. The sheep can't walk because his leg was just broken by the good shepherd. And the sheep learns to stay with the with the fold. Yeah. And and again, if you were to see the shepherd break the leg of the sheep and you didn't know what was going on, you'd be like, oh, my gosh, that shepherd is awful. He's so mean. He's so cruel. How could he ever do that to that sheep? But the shepherd is saying, no, I'm doing this because it's necessary to protect the life of the sheep so that the sheep doesn't continue to wander off. He learns how to stay within the umbrella of my protection. And again, most Christians today are like, oh, man, Jesus would never, ever hurt me. Like nothing would ever bring pain in my life. You know, Jesus is just so, you know, he's so nice all the time. He's so gentle all the time. Well, he is nice and he can be gentle. But he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I don't know, last time I checked, lions tend to not always be gentle. You know, yeah. <laughs> like they yeah. can be really, they can be really, uh, you know, they can bring the hammer down. Yeah. So, so again, that's kind of, yeah, we just got to, we got to get past this mindset that like Christians are to be these timid, you know, you know, not They're to be uh, trampled passive. under. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's not right. true. Christians are not to be trampled under. And right. j- just to continue your, your, painting the themes that Christ portrays himself as in the scriptures, we, we see that the gentle, the meek, the mild Christ, when he is here to die uh, a perfect, sinless, spotless lamb death on the cross for our sins, right? So that, that's when he's meek and mild. But what do we see in Revelation? He comes with recompense, and he's got his robe dipped in blood, and he's yeah. destroying the wicked of the earth. Um, he's, he's and, the commander of heaven's armies, you know yes. what I mean? Like, Yes. He's a he's a warrior king, you know, yeah. and I and I you, to your point, we get we got to see Jesus, a whole Jesus. Yeah, we got to see Jesus in physical form when he came as the Lamb of God. But when he hung on that cross and he said it is finished, he's he's like he's the King of Kings and the Lion of the Tribe of Judah, and he's the Lamb for those who need the blood of Jesus. But he's not he's not meek and timid. And you know when in the Sermon on the Mount, when when the Lord says, uh, "Blessed are the meek." for they shall inherit the earth. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but it's kind of like, gosh, it, that seems a little bit like a little like impossible. Like how, how can the meek inherit the earth? Right. Like in, in the kind of the sermon of the Mount was, was kind of that in it in itself. Anyway, it was like, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, you know, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are, you know, the, uh, the weak for they shall be strong, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like it was, it was kind of the, when I'm in the midst, God is saying, when I'm in the midst, you're going to do things that are like awesome. Well, that word meek was not necessarily the way that we think about it in the English. That word in the Greek was uh, was technically it was a word that the Romans used to um, uh, when they trained up war horses. They would be called meek horses, M-E-E-K-E-D, meek horses. And um, these horses would uh, they would be so trained for battle. They were war horses that but they, they knew every little movement of their rider's uh, like body position. Like, like the moment the rider would even do just the subtlest like, like tap uh, with, it, with, his, with his leg or with his hand or, or with the reins, that war horse would like on a dime do exactly what the rider was, was calling him to do. And, and those war horses were powerful in battle because they were, they were strong, but they were also very – they were strength under control and they were controlled by their master. And so what Jesus is saying, he said, Hey, blessed are those who are meek, who know my voice, who know my word, who, who, who do every command that I do to the, to the smallest tiny detail. The moment I whisper, they move, right? They hear my voice better than any other people around. Those are going to be the people that I send into the battle and they're going to conquer with force. They're going to love running into the battle because those war horses, guess what? They were trained for battle. They actually enjoyed running into the battle. That's what they, their whole existence 
was made for that. You see in Job, the Lord talks about the war horse. He says, Job, look how I made the horse, the war horse. He's prepared for the day of battle. He loves the trumpet sound. He begins to feel the arrows hit his side and he begins to snort and stomp his feet. And he gets excited to run into the battle. Well, yeah. God is saying, when you're meek, you're going to be like those war horses that are going to be ready to run into battle, but you're going to do it with such with such direction from the rider, from the commander, which is Jesus himself, that you will have so many victories in battle. But we've turned this blessed are the meek to say, I'm never going to fight. I'm going to, I'm going to back down. I'm going to, I'm going to be a doormat. And the Lord is saying, I've not made any of my children to be doormats. You are to be warriors in my kingdom. And so, so again, we just, again, we get a lot of things wrong in the English language because it doesn't necessarily translate like it, like it did in the Greek or the Hebrew. So. Amen. Yeah, th- th- those are really good teachings, and I hope anybody listening is is being confronted with maybe their meek and mild, gentle and lowly Christianity. Um, one note I do want to say on this, because people can kind of feel the intensity of what Mike and I are saying right now. All you should be feeling is the exclusivity of every single worldview. There's no religion that says, oh, that other religion can exist, and I can exist as well. That doesn't happen, right? We say Jesus is the way, truth, and life. The atheist says there's no God. Hindus say all their gods are the ways to nirvana or whatever. Uh, you know, I, I, the Eastern religions, I don't know as well. But, you know, and then uh, Islam says Muhammad is the chief prophet uh, and Allah is his God. Uh, you know, so all you're being confronted with right now is the exclusivity of worldview. It's not a bad thing. It's good. This is how society functions. A society doesn't function with a bunch of people that disagree with each other. So nothing ever gets, gets done. Uh, George Washington talks about that. Why was America successful? Because we all had the same customs, the same manners and the same traditions. We were all Christians. That's, that's why we could all be unified against the Brits. Um, so th- it's important for a society to, right. I mean, just like you were saying, we've seen this before. What happens is you have two different ideologies coming against each other. Eventually, the, the battle of the minds happening right now. Marxism is all battle of the mind. And then eventually you'll get Stalin, you'll get Adolf Hitler, you'll get some guys come up eventually and it'll be bad <laughs> or it'll be good if it's a, a peacemaking Christian, right? Because um, Christians don't, that, that's the difference, I guess, the uniqueness of the Christian worldview is there is the gospel of peace extended. No, nobody wants to murder anybody or kill anybody. That's not what the Christian wants. The Christian wants the gospel to be heard and received, Right. So I, I just want the, yeah, Sorry, you go. Well, I was just going to say, you know, like um, as much as, you know, God doesn't wish death upon anyone. You know, his word says that it's not his will that any should perish, Yes. but yet people perish all the time. You know, who was the first, who, like, who was the first uh, person in scripture to kill anything? Well, it was God himself. I mean, yeah. when Adam and Eve sinned, God killed uh, an animal to, you know, make a, a, a coverings for their nakedness, right? So God Himself, uh, He kills. He had like because man has fallen, uh, blood and blood is shed because of our sins. Like God understands that you know war and death, um, it, it's a way of life, and He and He He's ordained war. He doesn't. It's not that He's ever. It wasn't His his go-to wasn't his wish for mankind that we should ever go through war. War is hell. I mean, mm-hmm. again, you don't go to war because you want to, you do it so that your children and children's children, like Thomas Paine was saying, could live in peace. And, and, and that's why, you know, Jesus didn't want to go to the cross, but he did it so that we could live in peace so that we could have eternal peace. Yep. Yeah. So again, this idea that, you know, we, you know, Christians are supposed to stray away. My, my grandparents were pacifists. They were very much against any type of physical violence or, you know, even I would even say like, I would even say like even emotional or like mental disagreements, you know, <laughs> like I, I even, I hate to even say, use the word violence because just even like even a, a, de- a debate or a relatively passionate argument, like they would, they would stay, stay away from it. And they loved the Lord. They were, they were very solid believers and, and uh, they were missionaries to Japan after World War II. And so they, they really, you know, great people, but they were so, they, they were so far from who God was when it come, when it comes to understanding his lion of the tribe of Judah 
uh, character. They knew him as the Lamb of God, but boy, they didn't know him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And I think that's we. I think that's probably the problem with the American church is like we know Jesus is the Lamb, the Lamb of God, but we have no clue, you know, who that Lion is. And I think that's you know, you go back to even like C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. Like that was the that was the thing that when when Aslan the Lion showed up, it wasn't like always nice, you know, it wasn't gentle. It wasn't, you know, he's, he's not, he's not necessarily a tame lion, you know, is what, you know, one of the famous quotes from that, from that, uh, from that uh, series is. And, and so I think we just got to get back to this point, like in, in Christianity, where in America, where we, we fear God um, uh, with that righteous uh, reverence, you know, that fear and reverence of God and for who he is. But, but and I think if we get to that place, I think America will you'll see America really reengage and, uh, and and turn back to, to righteousness. I think you'll see our land healed. I think you'll see us repent. Yeah. Um, I feel like right now we are in this stage. And if you ever saw the movie Top Gun, there is a there is a uh, there's a point in the movie where, you know, Maverick is flying one of the planes and then the other the other character, his name is Ice, Iceman. You know, he's flying. He's like he's like the main, you know, Maverick's uh, Ice's wingman. Right. So Ice is kind of is kind of leading the charge and they come up against these Russian MiGs. And and all of a sudden Maverick has this panic moment, this freak out moment. Right. Because he had lost his best friend earlier in the movie and in an accident. And and uh, and so he disengages. Right. And I see the church is kind of like being like Maverick, where we've left the battle and you've got a few good like people fighting for truth, but they're being surrounded by the enemy and they're yelling at the American church. And this is in the world. You've got the, you've got some people in the world that are fighting for godly truth, but they're looking to America to lead the Christians in America to lead. And the church in America has, has, a has, has checked out. They're like, Oh, I don't know about this. This is way too dangerous. And, and, and you see in the movie, finally at the last minute, Maverick shakes off the fear and he reengages into the battle, gets on, gets on Ice's wing, and they they ended up, you know, shooting down a couple MIGs and running the other, you know, running the other ones out. And and I feel like that's that's kind of what I don't know yet. Is the American church gonna engage in the battle? Or are we going to are we just gonna say, ah, we're too scared, uh, and it's not for me? Well, what's happening is you've got brothers and sisters all, all around the world that are looking to America and to the church in America and to the power and the beacon of freedom that America is that was birthed out of godly principles saying, America, for the love, engage in this battle. We need you. And it's really up to the church. If the church does it, I think we're going to see great victory. If the church doesn't engage, I think we're going to see great, great uh, defeat. And I think we're going to see great tyranny. Now, I'm speaking... Physically, I'm not worried about the church's existence. The church is going to go on, and it will be the pure and spotless bride. There's, we win the bat. The church wins at the end of the at the end of the story, like Jesus wins. But, but within that, not every battle is guaranteed to us. God is saying, "Hey, I'm going to use you, and and if you do what I'm calling you to do, then I'll give you victory. But if you don't, then you're going to suffer a defeat." And so, so America better wake up and get engaged, or else um, the church in America better wake up and get engaged, or else yeah. you know it's going to go. It's not going to be. It's not going to be all lollipops and unicorns for very much longer. Yeah. No. Yeah. Amen, brother. I, I hope yeah people hear that. I know I've heard that. That's that's kind of why I wanted to do the podcast, why I wanted to, you know, I've, I've started to protest outside of abortion clinics and, and start to be more involved in fighting, right? Fighting because right now it is. It's, it's a mental war. It's a war of the heart. Um, it's the gospel proclamation going out. And then, yeah, like they might start killing Christians or, and, and persecuting Christians at some point. That, that could totally happen. Um, well, they are around the, in other places in the world. That's true. Yeah. So we, we don't know. We don't know where it where it'll go. Um, but I, I think that that's obviously in the mind of God. He knows what he how he's going to stir the hearts of his people or not. Um, OK, so, yeah, it's been, you know, we're kind of coming up on an hour here and we've, we've pretty much hit on everything that I was hoping to talk to you about, Micah. I guess my last thing just on. um current issues, things coming up right now. Um, what's your thought about maybe the upcoming primaries and maybe that in conjunction with the leaked SCOTUS opinion draft by Justice Alito about uh, um, reversing Roe v. Wade? What are your thoughts on that? And how should Christians maybe be involved in speaking about that? Yeah, well, as far as the primaries go, you know, specifically the Indiana primaries. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's talk Indiana primaries. Yeah, yeah. So we just had those um, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago now. 
And um, I think it was, uh, I've said it, you know, I was on WIBC and I said it kind of, you know, publicly. Um, I think the conservative movement took a small step forward. I think we, there were some defeats that, that we had that we saw like um, specifically with uh, guys like John Jacob or, uh, or Kurt nicely. Um, But, but again, uh, you know, John and Kurt, I don't think they need the, their office to be influential. I think they can be influential. You know, they were influential before they were ran for office and were in office. They'll be influential after one of the things that happened though, the establishment had to spend so much attention and money to get rid of John and Kurt because they really hate John and Kurt. I mean, like I've talked to, I've literally talked to some legislators that literally have a disdain for those guys. Now, listen, I'm not here to defend everything John and Kurt do. And I think there are some things that John and Kurt could have like, they could have extended more olive branches, but I don't necessarily think that God has wired them to always be like extending olive branches. I think they are, they're warriors that, you know, John specifically has, uh, you know, a John the Baptist, like, you know, <laughs> mindset yes, yeah. where he's like, I'm going in, I'm going to, I'm going to go and like, I'm bringing, you know, the hammer down on these, you know, corrupt, you know, politicians. And, and, and I say to most people, like, uh, if you if, if you're saying three or four years ago, like, hey, can we extend some more olive branches? I, maybe I would agree with you, but we just came out of a two year uh, thing where where people like Governor Holcomb and some of our Republican leaders totally trampled on the constitutional liberties of Americans and, and Hoosiers specifically, yeah. telling businesses they had to shut down, defining who's essential and non-essential. They have no authority to define who's essential and non-essential. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like where in the constitution do you see anywhere where a government official has the authority to say who is needed and who is not? Like the constitution, remember the constitution is not the law that governs we the people. The constitution is the law that governs the politicians. It tells them what they can and cannot do. And in the last two years, they have stepped outside of the bounds of what they're allowed to do. And so most Republicans, even the good ones that are constitutionally minded, that are in office right now, they didn't do anything. Like they just, you know, they just sat on their butts and they said, well, it's not, I really can't do anything. I, I guess, you know, it's the attorney general or it's the lieutenant governor or the governor or it's the, you know, you know, I, I've heard everyone blame everyone else. And at the end of the day, I was kind of like, I don't really care, like, who's to blame here. What I care about is who's getting off their hands and their feet and like and getting out and working to stop this. And John and Kurt were doing that. I saw them at multiple rallies. And, yeah, they were give, they were a thorn in the flesh to the establishment. I understand that. But. I think we needed a thorn in the yeah. flesh to the establishment because the establishment was literally trampling on our constitutional liberty. So don't give me this like, well, they wouldn't work with any anyone like you guys allowed tyrannical government to exist in Indiana for the last two years. So you don't really have much ground to stand on when you're blaming Kurt and John. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm coming. That's like my whole 30,000 foot view. No, that's I think, though, by the establishment going after John and Kurt so hard, uh, uh, John and Kurt and their organization, uh, Liberty Defense, uh, they were able to, you know, help f- at least four candidates who were very like-minded get elected. So while, yeah, they might have removed John and Kurt, they got four more John and Kurt's. You know what I mean? And yeah. so, like, so there's there's going to be four now that are down, or, and maybe even a couple more um, uh, down there. So again, like I said, I think the primaries were a good step forward for conservatives. Maybe not didn't quite go as far as maybe we some of us would have liked to see it go. But um, and I will say this, there is an element to the side of like the liberty defense movement. And they've got to learn to not always drop the atomic bomb on everyone. You know what I mean? Like there is there is an aspect of got to learn how to work with people. And and sometimes, you know, we're just because the Marines don't necessarily like the, the army doesn't mean they go out and shoot each other. You know, yeah. what I mean? like they're they are on the same team. They just, you know, they're gonna they're gonna not always think that the other one's doing the right job, and and but that's okay. And so we, you know, I kind of use the analogy like I, I feel like you know sometimes the Liberty Defense and the the Johns and the Kurtz they're kind of the atomic bombs, and we needed that. We needed the atomic bomb to win World War II. But if we drop the atomic bomb on near, uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima uh, before we invaded uh, Normandy it probably would have made matters worse. We needed to first take inch by inch and get Europe under control and, and beat the Nazis back before we could really even uh, address really uh, the empire of Japan. And so again, there's a time and a place to drop that atomic bomb, but 
but we've got to we've got to be a little bit more uh, strategic in when and how to do that. You know, um, yeah, that makes sense. Because we just end up killing all our own people. You know, and you don't want to do that. So, so that's my thoughts on the primaries. Um, your other question was the uh, uh, the leaked documents, right? Of yeah. the Supreme Court. Uh, well, two. I mean, we don't know who leaked it right now, anyway. Uh, at the time of this recording, but uh, I would say it's really concerning that a clerk and maybe even a Supreme court justice put a clerk up to this and who knows, it could have been a Supreme court justice that leaked this. We don't, we don't know that not to be true. And so um, if they did that to, you know, raise kind of the, the protests like we've seen now uh, that's really um, that's really a low blow. The, the, the courts are always supposed to be above politics, but I think it just maybe it, it exposes the cancer that has become the courts. I mean, the courts really have become a third branch uh, or I'm sorry, a legislative branch of government. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you heard the other day, but Joe, Joe Biden was giving a speech and he says, we hit no, no joke. These were his words. He said, we control all three branches of government. Speaking of the Democrats. Right. Uh-huh. And if you know anything about constitutional government, nobody controls or should control the judicial branch, right? Like that, that's, that's yeah. not supposed to be controlled by either party. That's yeah. supposed to be a separate non-political uh, mechanism that just makes sure that everyone's following the law that yeah. was written by the legislature. So, so we've, you know, for him to even admit the quiet part out loud was kind of funny, but you know, it is true. So we be, we've seen the courts become political and Roe, Roe was just, was a sign of that. I mean, Roe, even if you're, even if you're pro-abortion, and you're pro like that terrible nonsensical uh, piece of like I don't even know what to call it just that piece of crap you know that, that was that yeah. was that led that was judicially uh, judicially legislated into law so we shouldn't even happen in 1973 that that on its on its face is is really poor policy or procedure. Because you made a law from the judicial branch. So even for those who are pro-abortion, just the fact that you had to make law in the judicial branch shows, shows us how desperate you were and how much you had to warp the system to get your way. If you really wanted abortion to be legal, you should have done it in the legislature. You should have got a president to sign it in the law. But they know they can't do that, at least right now. And, and so they, what do they do? They run to the courts. That's why we have got to take the courts back as far as like limiting the power of the courts. The courts have way too much power. Yeah. If you study the constitution and the founding fathers, the most powerful branch of government was supposed to be the legislature. The yeah. second most powerful branch of government was supposed to be the executive branch. And at a very distant third, like, and I mean, distant third, yeah. the judicial branch was supposed to be the third most powerful branch of government and not even that powerful. It was literally just a referee. It should yeah. have just been like, this is legal. This is not. And and we've turned it into, honestly, arguably, we've turned it into one of the most powerful branches of government right now. And that we got to get it under control because you get nine justices, nine people in America said that it was OK to legally kill upwards of 65 million babies. Nine people made that decision. Like, yeah. is that's crazy. Yeah, that's absolutely crazy. Yep. No, it is. I mean, me and my, me and my buddies just went through the Federalist Papers and I forget which one it is, but the one that Hamilton wrote about the judiciary branch, he says it for himself in the Federalist Papers. You can go read it. He, he literally says exactly which, what you were just articulating that it, it's the weakest. It's a very distant, weak branch of government. And yeah, I mean, I think that's a good take on this, this leaked draft and, and, and kind of we need to, we need to put our branches in check. You know, the, yeah. the branches need to check each other. Well, and I would say too, Rocky, just last thing here, um, just so you know, if you're watching this and you're not real like kind of up to speed on what's going on, the, the, the Supreme court isn't even outlawing abortion. I mean, this isn't even what this is about. Like this is literally just saying the federal government should stay out of this. Like, so for those who say, Oh my gosh, Roe is being overturned. They're going to take away all of our women's rights. Right? Like, first of all, that's not even what's happening here. Like the, every state in America could theoretically keep abortion just as legal as it is today. Right. Yeah. It is. And, and again, from a, a constitutional policy perspective, 
the 10th Amendment honestly tells the federal government to stay out of matters like all the time. Like the 10th Amendment has been trampled on. Like the federal government has way too much influence in matters that should pertain to only the states. Yep. And, and so really what the federal government is doing right now is to say, hey, we just need to stay out of this. We're going to let the states decide. Now, from a constitutional perspective and someone who's a constitutionalist, the, first, the, the main thing the federal government should do is protect life. Because then if you have life, it can protect liberty. You can have liberty. And then if you have liberty, you can have the pursuit of happiness. So life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, those are the things that the federal government should really be concerned with. But so you could make an argument that the federal government has a right to outlaw abortion across across yeah. the nation, not the other way around, though. Exactly. And so, but even in this decision, it's just saying we're just going to throw it back to the state. So. For people who are like, oh, my gosh, Roe's going to be overturned. Well, no, it's technically just going to be thrown back to the states for the states to decide what to do. So exactly. we still got a lot of work to do in the pro-life community after this gets overturned. And and prayerfully, it will be overturned uh, here in a few months. So, yeah. Yep. Hey, that's that's really good information. Good take. Uh, and I agree. So I think that's uh I think that is good, brother. I appreciate you coming cool. on and uh, speaking to me um, and, 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 you know, informing our audience. So a lot of really good things that you said. I appreciate your wisdom. Guys, go check out Micah's website, MicahBeckwith.com. I'll put it in the show notes and also listen to his podcast. I've been enjoying it. Jesus, Sex, and Politics uh, with Micah and Nathan. Um, and I think you guys are both pastors at Life Church, right? Yeah, yeah. So Life Church, we have uh, Central Indiana. We have five campuses. Um and we, uh, Nathan's the lead pastor, uh, uh, over all campuses. I'm the Noblesville campus pastor. So that's, I'm at, I'm in Noblesville, but we've got, yeah, five campus told five campuses total. And it's, it's awesome, man. God's using life church to stand for truth in our, in our world. And it's been, Good. you know, it's fun. We, Nathan and I like to joke. We, uh, we love the cancel culture when they try to come after us because we're kind of like the war horses that we were talking about earlier. Like we're itching for the battle, just bring it on. Like, you know, we're yeah. going to, <laughs> not yeah. only are we going to, yeah, go ahead. Know, not only are we going to destroy your ideology, we're going to have fun doing it. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, who's winning about who's laughing and smiling. That's usually that's the guy, right, man. Oh, that's usually the guy that's winning. We love mocking. I mean, it is so easy to mock the foolishness of the world today. I mean, it's just fun. I mean, I have such a great, I mean, the fact that there's literally people saying that men can be women and women can be men. Like that's laughable. I feel like Elijah on, the, on Mount Carmel where you're just making fun of the prophets of Baal now and you're just having a good time doing it. So, yeah. uh, so I honestly, I'm living my best life. So <laughs> that's good brother. Yeah. And that's going to get even better one day in heaven. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's right. great. No matter how much fun you're having now. <laughs> right, man. That's okay. Right. Well, I, I always end with the doxology, uh, first Timothy one seventeen to the King of the ages, immortal and visible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen.